There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the first season of the War on Cancer podcast. This is the podcast where we aim to learn more about life with cancer, both during and after treatment, as loved ones, and how it affects us all. My name is Sebastian, and together with Fabian, my best friend, survivor, and co-founder of War on Cancer, we will be inviting experts and professionals and covering topics that are relevant for everyone that has been or is affected today. Our ambition is to shed a new light on the many aspects of cancer, and we hope that you will enjoy learning together with us. So we're going to cover a topic today that I know both you and myself find very interesting and almost intriguing, and that is psychology. Do you have any sort of favorite psychologists or theories within this field? I have a few. One of my passions when it comes to psychology is, or I would love to understand the link between mental health and physical health, as in how does depression, for instance, affect my immune system or my ability to pick up an illness? And does it? And does it? Exactly. If you want to go more kind of broad in the sense, I am very interested in, in the debate about free will whether we as humans do have a free will or whether we have this automatic behavior uh, which we can't affect. And for those of you who are interested in whether or not human species have free will, I would recommend two series that are going live right now. So the third season of Westworld and Devs on HBO, I think. Quite good series like taking up this whole aspect of do we have free will or not? And it's everything like... I think the the right term to use is, uh, is the universe deterministic? Does everything stem from something else? Which is an interesting theory. Can we predict anything? An endless chain reaction starting from Big Bang. Yeah, or even before, something that we don't know anything about. Yeah. I'm very interested in group dynamics. I find that so fascinating. Sometimes I feel on top of the world when I'm in a room with a group of people. And sometimes I feel like a complete loser. And I have no idea why. I can relate somewhat to it. Social psychology and especially group pressure. Yeah, maybe that's what it's called. Certainly, (laughs) certainly interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But in any ways, this is the topics that we're going to cover in today's episode. Obviously not if you feel like a loser in a room, but we're going to talk about the psychology connected to cancer. So hopefully you'll find this interesting, but I think we should uh, get down to business. Let's do it. So, uh, in today's episode, we're going to deep dive into the mind and try to figure out what's going on in there, especially in relation to cancer. 
Is cancer a trauma, and if so, how can we deal with it? How does friends and family get affected when someone gets diagnosed close to them, and how can we together help each other through it? In other words, we're going to talk about the psychological aspects of cancer and how it affects us, and with us here today we have dog, meaning day in Swedish. Dog is a certified psychologist and has worked with patients suffering from chronic pain and cancer. And as of 2018, he's a psychologist who takes face-to-face meetings, but digitally through the Swedish healthcare app Kry. So a big welcome to you, Dog. Thank you. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your work at Kry and how it is being a psychologist there? Absolutely. But before I do that, I want just want to thank you for welcoming me on this pod. And I also want to show appreciation that you focus on the mental aspects of cancer. Because I believe it's a huge area that goes unnoticed. Research have said that about 20% of uh, cancer patients suffer from depression and anxiety. Richards has also suggested that the depression can predict mortality within cancer. So I think it's a fantastic initiative that you are raising awareness about this. So uh, props on that. That said, I'm a dog, I'm a certified psychologist. I work within primary healthcare, which is the first line of defense uh, the patient comes to. And um, in the primary healthcare, my relationship with cancer patients consists of patients who has just received a diagnosis or patients who had diagnosis before and they are coming to me in order to help them recover and rehabilitate in life. So I meet them kind of uh, before, prior, and after, which means I get the full spectrum of experience regarding cancer. And currently I am working for CRI, which is a digital healthcare provider. And I don't know, do you want me to tell you a little bit more about CRI? I mean, I think I know a bit about Cree, and I think you should you should speak about what Cree is so that our listeners understand that. But it it would also be interesting if you could highlight sort of the difference because obviously you're a psychologist, but you meet patients through a screen, and it would be interesting to hear more about whether or not you think that you sort of do you lose out on the human touch or. Do you make your services more readily available for people that actually needs them? Excellent questions. Just in order to give the listeners a bit of insight on Cree, uh, we're a Swedish healthcare company. And uh, our mission is kind of to take advantage of the technological advances we made in the recent years and use it in order to make healthcare more accessible for everyone. So we are doing basically what an ordinary healthcare provider do, but we're doing it through internet, through video meetings and such. And regarding your questions, if I think um, something gets lost in the digital translation, uh, I would have to say no. My first suspicion and fear when I started working for Cree was that something would get lost, but quite the opposite actually, because in this medium, I am invited into the patient's home. We perform the therapy on their turf, which means a lot of their defenses are already lowered. They are more welcoming. I believe they feel more relaxed and at ease. So there's a lot of benefits that actually adds a human touch to it. So I think um, in general, digital healthcare, which uh, 
is not restricted to space and time like ordinary healthcare is the way of the future. So I'm very excited to working with this company. And from my impression, this is also what you are doing with your initiative, War on Cancer, that you are using the modern medium in order for people to use it in a health care setting. I don't know yeah. if I made myself and clear that, if it was reasonable. No, but I mean, we're utilizing digital in order for people to actually meet and connect with each other. So I guess that's absolutely true. Yes. And I mean, I can just refer to the way that we're actually recording this podcast, since we're all sitting in, in different rooms and we don't see each other. I think it really allows for you to utilize uh, the senses of, of listening. It's easier to listen and actually hear what people talk about from some perspective when you don't see them. That might sound strange. I don't know. Even though dog sees his patients through a screen. So it's, yeah. it's not really comparable, but I see what you're going for. By eliminating a lot of, I guess, senses, you focus more on the ones that you have. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, Fabian. Thank you. And, <laughs> and in regard to our topic today, it's very interesting because as we will getting into a bit later on, the social network, the connection with other people is a huge factor when it comes to dealing with diagnoses like cancer and such. So it's exciting that we are pioneering this new way of connecting and curing people. Certainly, and I'm, I'm glad you see the potential in, in digital health. We obviously do as well. Uh, I'd love to go back a bit and ask you about your time as a psychologist within the primary care, mm -hmm. because I can't remember a therapy even being mentioned to me when I was diagnosed. Uh, was it automatic for all patients that were diagnosed to be treated by you or another psychologist, or was that something that they had to ask for specifically to, to get access to? May I ask uh, before, at what year was it when you were diagnosed? July 2015. So it was that reason. I have worked at two healthcare centers, and this is CRI, and it's my third. And I have to say that what you are describing that you receive at cancer diagnosis and the question that you were not even asked if you wanted to talk with a psychologist, it really, really confuses me. It sounds very different from the experiences I have. But to me, it tells me that there seems to be lacking a systematic infrastructure how to deal with these patients. Because obviously in some ward central healthcare centers that I'd worked, it was natural that the doctors would come to me, okay, we have said this, I need you to give them a couple of sessions. But mm. you describe a complete different reality. So I, I really think this highlights that there is no formula, there is no established system of how to deal with this. Perhaps the reason is I, I didn't go through the route of primary care to secondary care. I don't think. What I did was I went to the A&E, as in the acute uh, emergency, uh, because I had trouble breathing. And two days later, I was diagnosed and in the specialized oncology care. So perhaps I missed one step because I guess when you go to the primary care, you go there because you experience some form of problem, either you're tired or you have stomach ache, and then then you 
perhaps it has to do with that, but because I was already with my oncologist, that, that was sort of almost the first experience that I had. Okay, tell me this then. When you received that diagnosis in that setting, did you feel like that information came with such a shock that someone to talk to would have benefited you? Or did you at the moment didn't even think about it? How was the experience for you? Mm. The news of my diagnosis came in two steps. Because I first went into the A&E when I felt I had trouble breathing at a different hospital. So the first experience was that I came in and I got a scan. And during the next two days, I mean, first I was told that they could see an anomaly in my chest. I asked what that meant and they said, well, they weren't allowed to tell me. I figured it was something really bad. And then... About uh, one day or a couple of hours afterwards, a doctor came to me and said, you probably have lymphoma, which is, uh, well, a form of blood cancer, as you know. And he said, well, it's, it's a pretty good, it's a really good one to get. It's 97% survival rate, so don't worry. And that was sort of like the first um, shock of cancer. That was the first time I heard it. So the doctor delivered it in a way so that I, I it, it didn't feel as terrible or as frightening. But then a, a couple of hours later, they told me that they had received some more tests and they had to transfer me to another hospital. I was transferred from St. Joram Capio to uh, Karolinska. And the first thing I was met with when I got there was two new doctors, or I think one or two doctors that came in to me and said, look, you have acute lymphoblastic leukemia. What is going through your mind when you hear all of these diagnoses upon mm. you, when you hear the word cancer? What happens inside of you? Mm. Honestly, I, it, it wasn't the way I had imagined it. I think I had thought about how it would be to be diagnosed with uh, sort of a deadly disease such as cancer because I'd seen it on television and stuff and it's always sort of portrayed in a very negative way. Uh, For me, there was no... I didn't experience any feelings like that. Um, On the contrary, I experienced a form of peacefulness. I experienced a lot of harmony and quite quickly I felt a form of acceptance that I was not going to live for much longer because that's all I knew about cancer was the fact that it meant death, especially blood cancer. So the question about mortality immediately popped up in your mind and you started uh, assessing how long you were going to live. There was a few moments because they they told me pretty quickly that I had about 60 to 70 percent chance of surviving. But there was a few moments before that when they had said, well, you have a leukemia and I had a chance to, it felt like time slowed down a bit because I had a chance to think about and process that uh, message or that information. And I made up my mind that, okay, I'm not going to live through this. I'm I'm probably going to die within a few months. And I remember those, that little moments to be very peaceful. For me, it felt like the first time in, in, in my life that I could actually relax a bit and, uh, and sort of let go and uh, just accept the fact that I wasn't going to live much longer. And I don't think that's perhaps the natural way to react to a cancer. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem like a normal way to react to a cancer diagnosis. 
And I've, I've analyzed it quite a lot. And I think it's got to do with the fact that I wasn't really happy before I was diagnosed. What you are describing, there are two parts of it. What I find very natural is you are describing an immensely powerful emotional experience. You are describing a sense of peace and emotion you haven't felt in a long time. And I think that aspect, that you have powerful emotional experience, is very natural. I think that is why psychologists should be inserted in order to help them catch that feeling. And then the other aspect that you find peace in death, that I can think was very individual to you, your personality and your situation. Yeah. I think this is really tapping into sort of the core of this episode, which is the link between cancer and psychology. And we've read up on some research that suggests that more than 20% of people diagnosed with cancer actually experience clinical depression, and roughly the same amount of people suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, when it comes to cancer, these are huge numbers when compared to other disease areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that is? I will try my very best to do so. Before we start talking about that, I, I, I think I feel the need to clarify that the meta-analysis, from the research I have read, the conclusion seems to be that there desperately needs to be more research made upon this. So there are a lot of hypotheses, there are a lot of what-ifs when it comes to describing the causality and the link between cancer and depression. So what I'm speaking about now and the kind of explanations I will give, they are partly not certified because it's very, very difficult causalities to research, which we'll get into later. But there are a lot of psychological models that can explain what happens with cancer and how that triggers depressive episodes. So I, I think the first thing we need to establish in order to truly understand what goes on inside our mind when we get cancer is like we have to understand what cancer is. And like the definition of cancer is that it's an uncontrolled growth of abnormal cells in the body. This means that somewhere in our body an uncontrollable automatic disease has begun to take on its own life. And this makes it very difficult because then we have, we have sort of a hidden enemy within us that multiplies. And why this is interesting in the course of depression is there is a very, very strong link between depression and helplessness. There is a term called learned helplessness, which can trigger depression. And learned helplessness is the feeling of no matter what you do, your life doesn't improve. You have no control. You have no power. You have no agency over what is happening. So I would like to ask you, when you got this diagnosis, do you recognize yourself in what I am describing here, the concept of the disease within you? Did you feel it like this was an uncontrollable mass that was hurting you from inside? Um, yes, I, um, I did experience it as something, almost a power 
of some sorts that had come to me for a reason and um, that was sort of living on its own. So I, I, I can't relate to what you're saying. I'm not sure whether I experienced a sense of helplessness in, in that sense because I'm a believer. I mean, I refuse to believe that there's nothing I could do whatsoever to, to survive this. Um, I mean, I, I felt personally that there, there must be a link between having a positive mindset and uh, survival. There must be a link between what you eat and survival as well as, you know, physical exercise. And um, so I, I didn't experience helplessness in that sense. I, I, I was confident there, that I could alter through my own actions, alter the, the likelihood of me surviving this. But I do did experience when thinking about cancer, I thought of it as some form of power that had a life on its own. So I can hardly relate to it. And I, and I, I guess we, we can spoke, speak on behalf of our listeners as well, because obviously we've met with not hundred and probably thousands of, of people going through cancer. And I think the word helplessness is something that has been continuously brought up. So I think a lot of people can actually relate to what you're saying. Ah, uh, we're going to delve into this topic later, but yeah. I just want to make a notion about it because it's interesting what you're saying and how you coped with it. Because research has also shown that our ability to cope with the sense of helplessness actually can predict the, the progression of the disease. This mm. is why some, some believe that those with untreated depression, they have higher mortality rates in cancer than those without depression. So the things you are sp speaking about, the abilities of a positive mindset, of uh, still believing in the power that you can affect the outcome, you both personally described that it helped you overcome this. I would say from getting to know you a bit that you could be classified as someone who managed the crisis and trauma of cancer in a very positive way. You, you seem to have grown for it. We will talk about that later also. So I, I, it's, it's very interesting that you are self-describing the aspects that research has shown is beneficial in cancer. This is really, I'm, I'm really interesting to hear. And it is actually the first time I've heard that there is research on this topic. Would you be able to elaborate on that? Absolutely. In regards to that, we, we have to speak in a bit general of what I, I need to bring up terms as trauma and resilience, because they are very relevant in this discussion. And um, the definition of resilience, which is the ability to cope with trauma and, and stress, can be defined as our ability to recover from sudden changes, stressors, traumas, or wounds that is inflicted upon us. A very common metaphor would be to imagine life like a rafting trip down a river. And the river will have its twists and turns and sudden waves, just like real life. And our resilience is our ability to keep the boat steady, to keep it balanced, even through stormy waters. And mostly people will be able to clear the hurdles the river throws at us. We get our hearts broken, we get sick, we get um, divorces, parents die, and it throws us off course, but we can bounce back pretty easily. But every now and then, no matter how good our resilience are, the river can 
gets too rough and throw a raft upside down. Like with cancer, cancer consists of so many somatic changes, psychological changes, socioeconomic changes. So that can be likened like a huge wave that throws you over. And this positive mindset, what research has shown, that resilience is a deciding factor in how quickly you recover and how little damage from the flip you take. And they have shown that ability, it's partly genetic. It is some people are, are basically born with it more than others. In Sweden, we have this term called muskerous barn. I think muskerous is dandelions. This flower that can grow anywhere. Like it, it doesn't matter the environment pressure, it can still grow. But research has also shown that resilience is something that can be trained. It's something that can be learned and it's something that can be practiced or you can fail to practice it. And there are a couple of, like, they have done even further studies of what benefits resilience. And one of the most common things is finding a meaning out of the trauma that was inflicted upon you. Taking that and creating something new out of it that wouldn't be present in your life if the trauma didn't occur. That is one very, very powerful aspect of it. And I I wanted to ask you uh, about it, because from my understanding, the whole reason why we are sitting here right now, the three of us, is because this trauma was inflicted upon you. Yeah. When did that occur from you? Where did that come from? Your ability to turn this horrible news you got into this? Well, it started as a consequence of me, I would say, probably not being offered the ability or the chance to speak to a therapist. So my way of of coping with a lot of the mental aspects of going through cancer was to share my story openly in a blog. And for me, this blog became a savior from a mental health point of view. It also made me understand the power of storytelling. Why? Well, firstly, I found writing my story very therapeutic. Um, I shared very truthfully and openly about what I was feeling and experiencing uh, on a day-to-day basis. So I think I was processing a lot of the sort of mental hardships in real time. Um, Secondly, because I was sharing my friends, uh, Sebastian and and other friends and my family understood how they could behave to become better support to me. Uh, I think. And uh, that led me to, I mean, for me, I wanted to avoid being treated like a victim. And I tried to communicate when I was sharing my story that I would love for everybody to just treat me like Fabian going through cancer rather than being treated like a victim or being treated like cancer. And the third reason why it was so good for me was because I was helping others through this blog and that had a profoundly positive impact on my mental health. So I think this blog had some 200,000 readers uh, at its peak and 
I was sharing for for every post that I shared, I, I received hundreds of messages back from people who shared privately with me about their experiences, and they thanked me for for helping them. and And I can honestly say that I've never in my life felt a bigger sense of purpose or meaning, and I've never in my life felt happier. I was much happier with cancer than I was before I was diagnosed, because I had this feeling of helping so many and. I started to develop a gratefulness towards being diagnosed. I remember walking up to my mother and said, you know what, I'm so thankful I got leukemia because it, it's led me to feel this way and it's enabled me to help so many others. And around here, I had this vision formed that, that what if we can make other people feel the same way? What if we can build a product that makes other people experience this? And I brought this up to Sebastian, and together we started building War on Cancer. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this is, um, and this was actually you guys, when I get in, in touch with you, you informed me on this term. It's a pretty recently found definition of what you are describing and it's called post-traumatic mm. growth and as i said before the definition of resilience is our ability to bounce back from uh, an offset and back into our regular life why they created this post-traumatic growth definition it's it's kind of new was because when it came to things like cancer and other things, there really was no going back to how it used to be. That was out of the question. It was more about creating something entirely new. And this is what you are describing. You are describing basically two different lives, one before cancer, one better, and you're actually describing that you preferred the latter kind of life. Yeah. And could you tell me a bit more, because you mentioned Sebastian here, because that is one of the other factors that predetermines good resilience or post-traumatic growth, and that it's the ability to recruit our friends, our family, to use our social network. Could you describe a bit about the part Sebastian played in your recovery? Uh, yes. I mean, first of all, so Sebastian and I have been best friends for half of our lives. And we were sharing a flat together in London when I was diagnosed. And some interesting things happen when you get cancer. You know, some friends just naturally just fade away, perhaps because of the fact that they're not real friends in the first place or because they find the whole topic of cancer very frightening. But Sebastian was one of those people, or 
I guess it's always this one friend that just steps up and becomes more of a fr friend when you go through something like this. And that was Sebastian. So we spoke on the phone pretty much every day, just naturally. And pretty quickly, I think Sebastian, I mean, and Sebastian will have to fill in here himself, of course, but he was very good at sort of reading in what I... I think he, he relatively, within a few weeks or perhaps months, he understood sort of, okay, the way you got to deal with Fabian is to just treat him like I used to treat him, like a friend and talk about things that normal friends talk about. And it was very comforting for me to have someone to talk to about just normal stuff like parties and work and, you know, whatever you talk about with your friends. Because I have a lot of friends around me who were really lovely friends, but they focused way too much on talking about cancer whenever they talked to me or spoke to me. So Sebastian was very important in this recovery process for me. And, and he was a natural person for me to reach out to with this idea about war on cancer as well, because I needed someone that I could trust and that I then also needed someone who understood the power of, of stories. And I think Sebastian was the perfect candidate for it. I often get the question, both by cancer patients and by relatives to cancer patients, the relatives ask, how should I act? What should I do? What should I focus on in order to support the person the most? And uh, the patient often asks, how should I relate to other people? So this seems to be like a, a common question mark. How do we relate to each other so it's best for everybody? And you are describing that somehow for some reason Sebastian filled the perfect need for you in order for you to utilize him as support and growth. How did you guys find that interaction that was so beneficial for the I both know of you? the answer to that question, yeah. I think. And I think this is really interesting as well for, for everyone listening that it, that is not going through or have gone through a diagnosis themselves because I have to say I'm very sort of happy to hear you say that I that I was so supportive but really in the beginning I mean I was pretty certain that my best friend was going to die so to be honest I mean I called him every day not because he asked me to or because he wanted me to give him a call I called him because I needed the support because I didn't know how to handle the fact that I thought that my best friend was going to die and it was just after reading Fabian's uh, story in his blog that I realized that the most the biggest hardship throughout all of this was not to be normal. And then I realized that I need to be normal with Fabian in order for him to feel normal. And that's when sort of the, in Swedish we say the poletten faller ner. I have no idea how to, how to, but like <laughs> everything clicks, right? So I understood this. And it was, uh, it was quite a big moment for I think both Fabian and myself when we realized that storytelling is something that can not only benefit somebody going through cancer as of now but it can also help everyone around them yeah I, I just don't think you're giving yourself enough credit because i mean there was a lot of people who read the blog a lot of friends of mine who read the blog that still didn't understand or didn't really alter their behavior whenever they met me so i think you also have a natural ability to be adapt a lot to and, and sort of feel in 
instinctively how people want to be treated and people need to be treated. I think that is a talent of yours because a lot of people that read the, the blog, they were always the same. They were treating me like a victim whenever they met me. And that is, a, I think it's, some, it's a bit of a specialty or a special skill that you have in that sense. That's very nice. Maybe I'm just a uh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> but let, let, let's talk about that because, because I mean, um, I don't want to cut you short, dog, and I'm actually going to ask you a question. I mean, when it comes to cancer and psychology, and we, we have tapped into sort of um, trauma, that cancer inflicts a trauma, and it's pretty evident from everyone that we have talked to throughout the years, and it would be interesting to hear from you as well. Trauma is something that enters people's life when you hear the word cancer, both people going through a diagnosis and people around them. Like, how do you, how would you define the trauma that is cancer? And is trauma afflicted by cancer different from trauma afflicted from other things? Okay, yes, very good. Uh, before I answer that, I just want to wrap a little bow about the previous thing that was said. Because I think I want to give a clear answer to the question, what is beneficial in the interactions for who suffers from cancer? And my experience is sometimes my patients complains that I feel frustrated that my environment doesn't understand how tired and sick I am. And sometimes I get the opposite. I get, I'm so sick and tired of everybody asking me if I'm tired. And what you defined as the successful component in your interaction was that Sebastian had the ability to tune in to your personal needs and figure out what you as an individual needed. And I think what I recommend to uh, relatives is try to forget about there is no preconceived correct way. If your focus is only Try to tune in on what the person is feeling and needing at the moment and use your individual compassion. I think that is the most effective guide for you to be a good, good support. So I want to use you as an example of what is successful there. With that said, speaking of what constitutes uh, why cancer becomes such a huge trauma, then you can think of it like this. One of the most uh, common triggers of, of a trauma is a psychological trauma, at least, is when too many things in life change all of a sudden during a too short period. And if you think about and imagine how many aspects of your life change the moment you get a diagnosis, it's quite staggering. Just imagine the role changes you are going through. You change the role from like, a healthy person in the middle of the life with an endless amount of time ahead of you till all of a sudden you become in both your own eyes and society eyes a sick person with a limited amount of time that is a huge psychological uh, adjustment to wrap your head head around and that is only one thing then we also have the economic status we have the somatic status you are suddenly not an independent person anymore. You have to oblige to doctors. You have to oblige to medicines. You lose the agency of your life. There is all the uncertainty. Uncertainty is one of the most strongest indicators of stress. When we are subject to something so powerful, but we are uncertain about it. So 
I would say why cancer is such a huge correlation with trauma is because the huge number of changes your mental and your body is going through in a very, very short moment. Now, Fabian, you described when you received the diagnosis a very powerful experience. Did you, did you feel the same way, that there was a lot of changes in a short period of time? It, it felt like everything changed in a way. I mean, I had to move home from London to Stockholm, move in with my mother, and uh, lost all form of income that I had, lost all form of mobility, um, wasn't able to go out and see my friends as I normally could, lost my career completely, and lost about half of my friendship for like 50%, and then lost direction. For me, that was probably the most uh, traumatizing I've always been someone, I've been a careerist all my life and sort of like very focused on the future and sort of producing and performing, uh, moving forward. And, and for the first time in my life, I could no longer see a clear path for myself. Uh, and that was frightening for me. I think one of the first questions that I asked to the doctors was, will I be able to work? And because that was probably, that was the most important thing for me, especially back then. Uh, yes. I think you can draw a, a parallel to what research has shown happens with um, athletes, professional athletes who suffer an, uh, a damage, an injury, and they can't perform their sports anymore. And uh, everything they have built their life around, their self-identity, their goals, their priorities, all of a sudden that is gone within a couple of days. And almost everyone, one of them suffered an uh, enormous clinical major depression because all of that was of valuable is suddenly lost or uncertain. And what you described, you described all the components of your grown-up life, <laughs> like all yeah. your direction was stripped away from you in a matter of days. So I think it has a lot to do, not just with the disease itself, but the implications of disease, of your goals, of your values, and your uh, ability to live the life you wanted to. But then we come into the question of when are you supposed to seek help? Professional help, that is. When is it no longer enough to call your best friend or to call your parents or to sort of wait it out? What are the telltale signs for when you should call dog, a certified psychiatrist, and ask for help? I think <laughs> it's, uh, I am biased. I, personally, I think uh, everyone should call me. Everyone should have a psychologist at all times. But more specifically, I, I think it, it should be uh, included in the cancer treatment that you should be offered a psychologist. I do believe there are a certain amount of people like Fabian, you're a living proof of it, that can manage to cope on their own. I think there are rare cases. But I would say, from what I understood and what I spoke with my patients, one of the most difficult things with mental illness, depression, and cancer is you are not sure what is psychological and what is somatic. You are not sure what is tiredness and depression, and you are not sure what is actually your body saying no. And it's a difficult thing because one of the most effective treatments for uh, 
depression. It's called behavior activation. And behavior activation, if I'm going to simplify it a bit, it, it means that you identify depressive behaviors like isolating yourself, sleeping too much, not taking care of your hygiene, such things. And you replace them with non-depressive behaviors, such as taking walks, walking with people. But the premise for that to work is that the new behaviors actually have a positive effect on your mood. But if you have cancer, that is not always certain. It is not always certain that going for a walk might make you feel better because it might be pushing your uh, body to what it's not needed. And I think in those cases, when you're feeling confused about what is what, what is right to do, how should I live? When you're confused, and then I think it's the most important thing that you reach out to a psychologist who can help you discern what is what, who can help you make a plan in order how to recover parts of your life that you still can manage. Uh, is this something you have heard when you have spoken to cancer patients? Uh, a bit of confusion of how should I live? What should I do? What is right for me? Definitely. I think that is one of the most common questions there is that we have encountered when we speak to patients is exactly that. What should I do? What is right? And how should I live through this? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty common that things like the questions that we get and the answers that people would like to have are binary uh, in <laughs> they're binary. They want <laughs> yes or no answers to questions about what is good and what is bad. And um, yeah, it's pretty obvious when talking to academics and doctors and uh, now psychologists that it's I guess it depends on who you are and what you have gone through and your physical and mental abilities at the time, which can also change over time, I guess. People want answers that can lead them forward, right? Yeah, um, yes, yeah. And I think even if you reach out, even if you, you, you get a psychologist, you get a doctor, the problem is the doctor or the psychologist is never going to be able to give you that proper binary answers. We don't have the technology or insight yet. So what you speak about, like in order how to cope with this, and this is kind of relates to how patients with chronic pain lives, is that you need to develop a sort of adaptive, exploring mentality about what you can achieve. Basically, it means to not stop doing the things you love to do. Keep doing them, but with regulations and constant monitoring of how much you can do them before they start to tire you out. So this means adjusting your mindset a bit. If you are like you were, Fabian, a very high-achieving person in the career, used to doing a lot of things, maybe training much, I think a person like you to defeat depression, you would still have to find ways to pursue these goals of doing something like you did with this war on cancer thing. You, the career side in you, the, the, the driven side in you, you find another outlet for it and you survived. So, and I think that's the same with people who train. They have to adjust. Maybe I, maybe I can't run a marathon. Maybe I can train at the gym six times. Maybe I won't have that six pack, but I'm still 
going to be in touch with my ability to go out and move myself, maybe take a walk and such. So I, I think it's just like adjusting the inner bar of how much you can achieve, but continue to explore it. Yeah. And that is something uh, a psychologist can help you with. It can help you structure, okay, you can try this, see how it affects you. You can try this, you can try this very much. And do you feel, did you have to sacrifice anything great that you couldn't come back to, Fabian? I can, I can definitely relate to sort of channeling in my careerist uh, mindset into the blog. It, for me, it felt like sharing. So it felt like a job for me. The blog was my reason to get up each morning. I centered my life around those posts, uh, images that I would take, uh, sort of having a storyline or not a storyline, but having a sort of like a an idea of what to write. And sort of around it was also quite a lot of sort of journalists that called because it, it became quite hyped in the beginning. So it, it worked perfectly for me sharing that blog. And I think that I probably compensated or the, the careerist part of me was really satisfied. But I think the biggest sacrifice that I made or had to make was this feeling of freedom, the feeling of not being able to move about, uh, the feeling of not being sort of being locked in uh, my mother's apartment in the wrong country. For me, it felt like the wrong country because I was in Sweden and wasn't supposed to live there. That was, for me, the biggest sacrifice, and that was depressing. And this brings us to one of the third core concepts of good resilience, which is acceptance. And acceptance can be defined as our ability to receive and experience reality as it is without trying to fight it, change it, or modify it. When it comes to acceptance, you who have done an enormous like research and talked to so many, do you find that cancer patients have difficulty accepting the limitations of their new life? From my experience, that is one of the biggest dividers amongst people. Whenever you talk to people in treatments or people that have gone through treatment, you have on the one hand people that are very much in the mindset of why, you know, they are, they don't understand why they were diagnosed. They feel as if it is unfair. They just want everything to go back to their normal and they don't see any point or value whatsoever in having gone through cancer. And then you have the other group of people that they grow from it or grow out of it. They see a purpose for them being diagnosed and they have fully accepted that they have been diagnosed with cancer. And what we're hoping to do with the Warren Cancer app is to, from using the app, enable more people to lean into the sort of acceptance camp rather than the non-accepting camp. Did you feel that, because this is an interesting topic in itself, the making sense out of the storytelling, the writing. Did you feel that the writing, did it help you with your acceptance? Did it help you accept the pure bad parts of cancer? Um, yes. I'm certain that writing played a big part in helping me to accept. I mean, I, and if, I'm probably going to come across as an amateur therapist or psychologist now, but from what we have learned from reading up about trauma, PTSD, clinical depression, and sort of coping mechanisms, 
it feels like now in hindsight, I understand that really what I did when I was sharing my story in the blog is that I, without understanding it myself, I applied several coping mechanisms at the same time. Where, I mean, one coping mechanism is expressive writing to to share and write about your experiences as a way for you to cope and deal with your trauma and another coping mechanism is to have social support so have people around you that understand what you're going through so there's a big difference in having people around you that don't understand because then what you're going to get is a lot of sympathy but what you need is empathy people who can say you know what been there done that and understand what you're going through and i understand what you're feeling and thirdly, this notion of helping others. So another coping mechanism is by helping others, you heal. I want to promote your app a bit, but this is what I found very interesting about the initiative you have taken. Because in a sense, you are not an amateur psychologist because you are sitting with the expertise on this. No education I have can give me a better understanding of what's going through with cancer than you have. So it's, it's it's very enlightening for me to listen to you and to compare that to what I know about research. And what I know absolutely has a very healing process, and this is also founded by research, is that when you're allowed to verbalize your emotion towards an object who can understand and validate those emotions, something happens there. It happens an enormous thing inside us that helps us get rid of the feelings we are experiencing. And people who are not allowed to verbalize their feelings or they don't have someone who can listen to them and validate them, they get stuck. Depression and anxiety is much, much more common in those cases. And sometimes I can feel when I'm talking with a patient and I'm trying to help and I'm trying to understand what he or she has been going through. Regarding cancer, I feel insufficient because I can't really understand. I, I, I can show empathy and I can like be there for them, but I don't really, really understand. So in some cases, I'm thinking maybe that aspect is better facilitated through networks like you have created. So partly what you say that you experience through writing that is backed by evidence and partly I think the platform you are creating is an uh, enormous opportunity for everybody to experience what you experienced. So it's a very interesting prospect. Really glad to hear that you, uh, as an, an expert, believe in, in or sort of you're validating our hypothesis, you know, our theory that war on cancer, our app, can uh, alleviate. Our aim is for us to be able to guarantee that using our app increases mental health or helps you deal and process depression. And it's, it's wonderful to hear. So for the people listening, we've been talking about sort of clinical depression and PTSD. And from your experience, is this something that therapists, you know, you're pointing to research, but would you say that therapists or psychologists are sort of aware of this? And are patients informed about this? And if so, are they done so adequately? I would say that every clinician, even doctors and nurses, they are to somewhat degree trained to handle crises. And um, 
the idea is that every healthcare personnel should be able to emotionally handle this kind of conversation that can occur when you talk about cancer. Then I also believe it's a question of how much you implement it and your personal proficiency within it. Yeah. So this whole talk about PTSD and clinical depression might come as a shock. And some of you might wonder, do I have PTSD right now? If I've been through cancer a couple of years ago, am I affected? What are your advice here, dog? What should you do if, if you're worried as someone who's been through cancer? My primary advice is that is not something you should try figuring it out on your own. There is no reason whatsoever why you should be responsible for figuring that out by yourself. And especially not now when uh, getting in touch with psychologists and doctors are so much easier. That is a very, very good cause just to contact a psychologist. I want to help with understanding if I still have any symptoms of this. How much remains? Because it, it can be basically impossible to figure it out from yourself. You have confirmation bias. You see it from within. So I would say there, don't even like... Don't worry about it too much. Just contact a physician or a psychologist. Use the apps that are available and you can get help with it like within a half an hour. It's what we do. It's what we're here for. So utilize the healthcare system. Take what you can from it. It's your tax money. Unless you're in there from the U.S. Unless you're from the US. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And and with that dog, I we we have to unfortunately start rounding this podcast off. But I would like to ask you another question, and that refers to normality or whatever normal is. After or during a cancer diagnosis, is there any normal to go back to or is normal very subjective? I just want to hear your quick thoughts on that. Of course, I have to generalize because uh, cancer can have such wide effects. But if your mindset is, I want to get back to normal as quickly as possible, I think that mindset can be a hindrance because that means you are constantly going to compare the now with the past. This is something we call comparison thinking, and it's connected with being a bit dissatisfied with the present because you always remember the past through a rosy tint, at least. So if you want to practice resilience, I would suggest that the question in your mind should be, what can I create out of this? What can I make of my life that I hadn't done if this hadn't happened for me? Evaluate the possible future with the now instead of looking back at the past. I know it's not a clear binary answer, but I think your best shot in this moment is to focus on the resilience, the factors we spoke about today. Focus about acceptance, about finding a meaning, about recruiting your social network. And uh, this thought about what is normal, what can I go back to, like it's a question it's going to hit your mind you don't suppress it but maybe don't dwell on it too much if that makes sense i think that's a it's a general answer but it's a beautiful answer and i mean from our perspective we know that it works in the case of fabian and that's the only experience we have so we can stand by that advice it's uh, expert expert certified, certified exactly so earlier in the episode we talked a bit about post-traumatic growth 
And I mean, we're touching upon it now as well with resilience. This is going to be more of a philosophical question here, but do you think that everybody can reach post-traumatic growth given the right help and sort of the right tools? Or is it something that is not achievable for everybody? Good question. First, I I just want to make it clear. When it comes to post-traumatic growth, that term in itself, it's quite a modern invention. And because it is a modern concept, it doesn't have that much empirical support behind it. And it has been quite questioned for a lot of reasons. But that is always the case when you, you create a new term for something. The fact that growing and becoming better from suffering, that in itself is not a new concept. That has been around for thousands of years, that through suffering can we become better people. It's the foundation of many religions. So with regards to that, they have shown that it's not like an innate skill that you either have it or you don't. It's more something you practice. And you can be better at practicing it. You can have more uh, integrated physical structures that benefits that kind of processing. And you can lack it. So I would say it is a skill, first and foremost. It's a skill that can be trained. It's a skill that you can choose to practice or you can choose to abandon it. So that means you can be the most proficient person in the world, but if you succumb to depression and cancer and you stop fighting and you stop doing the things that is important, you have the ability to resilience, but you don't use it. And, And quite the opposite, those who are not, may be trained or raised in an environment where they are thought to believe in themselves and that things can go well, they can learn it through their correct help and guidance. So it's a kind of a mix. Some people have easier for it, but it's ultimately up how you use the ability of resilience or post-traumatic growth. The research, it says you don't experience post-traumatic growth just by experiencing trauma. You achieve post-traumatic growth through experiencing trauma in a certain way. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think that is very uh, encouraging and motivational to hear that it is something you can train. That is a skill. You can do something about it. Yes. Yes, it's within your power. You have the agency still. And I agree. It is a empowering message. And with that, dog, thank you so much for being on today's episode of the War on Cancer podcast. Uh, we've learned quite some new things today, and we hope our listeners have too. If you want to speak with Dog, you can find him on the Kri app, I guess. Is that how you do it? Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dog. Thank you for having me. Next week, we will invite Melissa Moger a person that can answer one of the most debated questions in the cancer community. Is sugar good or bad? Or is this perhaps not a binary question? Melissa comes from a background of being a nutritionist and is now a public health engagement manager at the World Cancer Research Fund in the UK. We will cover the topic of nutrition, exercise, and focus on debunking some myths and getting down to facts. One thing I know is that I want to know more about bacon smoothies. If you do too, make sure to tune in next week. If you want to learn more about our guests, go to waroncancer.com. And as always, you can find both myself and Fabian on the War on Cancer app.